Hear now the word of God. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, From others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. And take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you... Speak to us in your word today, reminding us that you have rescued and redeemed us through the work of your beloved son, by whom we are able to call you father. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I think you probably notice this as you read your own Bibles. There are things in the Bible Um, And let's just get more specific. There are things in the New Testament that we easily relate to and that take almost no translation or explanation for us to understand. Um, One of the best examples is when Jesus gets asked about paying taxes later in the Gospel of Matthew, right? That is a passage we're going to get to. Um, But here is the thing about that passage. When we get to that passage, I'm not going to have to explain to you what taxes are. Right. It's been 2000 years and here we are. Right. We go look at their context. The Jewish people don't like paying taxes. Bring it up to the modern context. We don't like paying taxes either. Um, Boom. Perfect cultural connection between their world and ours. It takes almost no translation. But then we look at a passage like today's. And at first it kind of sounds similar. Right. Jesus, why don't you pay this tax? Except that you and I don't have any kind of connection with the tax that they're asking about here. And so this passage takes a bit of work for us to understand what's actually going on. And yet I hope that you are going to see that this passage, as foreign as it might be to us in our own context, it's worth the work that it takes to understand. So while you and I may not pay temple taxes today, right? Like we don't have a box at the door and you've got to put something in it before you can come in, right? Um, We don't do that sort of thing. Um, When you do give in church, you give willingly and not from compulsion, right? That is a big difference from Jesus's day and our own day. And while we might not immediately connect with this idea of the temple tax, there are at least three things here that hit very close to home. And and I sort of want to organize what we say this morning around this. And so I want to first focus on the temple tax. In other words, I want us to understand this cultural artifact and what's going on as this question comes up. Second, the the second point is the sons. And then the third point is the deference. So there's no rhyme or reason to the structure of the three points. There's no alliteration, nothing like that. Instead, it's all business today. We're all business. We're getting right to it. Uh, but I want you to see something, though. Um, because of Jesus's sonship, 
And because of Jesus' disciples' sonship, they don't owe the tax. And yet they defer to the authorities and they still pay it. And so if that sounds a bit foreign to you, then let's just look at the first point. The first point is the temple tax. Notice the way that this opens up. The, they arrive in Capernaum, which is, in, in a sense, is Jesus' home base. It's sort of the hub from which he operates. He doesn't have a home there, but he has a home that he's staying at at least. And as he's in Capernaum, there's this official in the city. And the official has come from Jerusalem. And his job is to collect money for the temple. And so that, that sort of gives us verse 24. It says, when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? I want you to understand what the two drachma tax is because Matthew assumes it, right? Matthew assumes that his readers know about the tax, right? There's no explanation in the text. He doesn't, he doesn't stick a line in there where he sort of explains what it is. Um, he just assumes that his readers know what that is. And, and by the way, when you're looking at, at the New Testament and you're looking for the sort of subtle things that tell you about the early date of its writing, about the authenticity of the passage. This is the sort of thing that I, I just want you to notice as you're looking through here. The sort of details that are left out sometimes say a lot about when something is written. And some of what we could at least see from the fact that, the, that, that Matthew doesn't explain this is that the gospel was still written while the temple was standing. And it was written for a people who lived close enough to the events that they didn't need this explained to them, right? So, you know, this is not something that's written way later. It's not written after 70 AD or something like that. It's written much earlier is one of the things that this indicates. Um, But see, we do need it explained for us. And so if somebody was writing this in 200 AD or 300 AD, they would at least put something in there for the readers to understand what they're even talking about. So notice this. None of the other gospel writers include this story. Why does Matthew include this? But Luke and Mark and John leave it out. Well, think about this for a moment. What is Matthew's job? Matthew's, he's a tax collector, right? Matthew does this for a living. It may very well be that Matthew is very attuned to the subject of taxes because this is his line of work. Um, You know, when Jesus talks about plants and botany in scripture, I'm sure some of you have green thumbs, right? You have a love of plants. You have a love of that kind of work. And so when Jesus talks about plants, you're on top of it, you know? Uh, Meanwhile, me, whenever the New Testament talks about plants, I go, I need to find an expert because I'm going to do something wrong here. Um, And it seems like this is an impactful moment for Matthew because this is his wheelhouse, Matthew loved, loves taxes. He's the one. He's the one guy that loves taxes, and he's so interested in it. But here's, here's what we need to understand. We need to understand this tax. In the second century BC, the rulers of Judea formalized this practice of making every Jewish male over 20 years old pay an annual tax of a half shekel. And the way that they would collect the money is that they would have local collectors visit the residents of towns like Capernaum, and then they would send that money back to Jerusalem. Josephus was a Jewish historian during this time, and according to Josephus, this was very lucrative. This was a big moneymaker. Apparently, they collected far more than was needed for the upkeep of the temple, 
And Josephus said that they had to get inventive about what to do with all the money they collected. And so they used the leftover money to construct a massive golden vine. Um, I don't know how, and I don't know if it's gold covered or if it's solid gold. I don't know. Uh, I just know that that's what Josephus says. He tells us that there was a giant golden vine at the temple. And so they, they took this tax up every spring, and the law was also very specific about the coin that was used to pay. So we even need to talk about the coin. A drachma coin was not a Roman coin. So just know that you're talking about a different unit of currency than the Romans dealt with. What they wanted in the temple was a Greek coin worth about a day's wages. And it was specifically one that was minted entire. And if you looked at the coin, it had pagan imagery on it, which I know sounds crazy for the Jews to use this, but it had pagan imagery on it. So on the one side, it had a bust of the Greek god Heracles, who was the god of Tyre. And on the, on the other side, there was an image of an eagle perched on the front of a ship with an inscription. And the inscription said, Tyre, the holy and inviolable. These are the coins that the collector is taking up. Now, you would ordinarily imagine that would be very offensive, you would think, to the Jewish authorities. And so why would they accept this kind of coin? Well, here's what we think. Jewish authorities were offended by Roman coins uh, because Roman coins had the image of a man on them. Uh, but Greek coins didn't. They had images of animals on them. And so the Greek the Greek coin wasn't considered to be a violation of the second commandment because it didn't contain an image of a human being like the Roman coins. Another reason is that it was a coin of commerce, right? It wasn't a coin of religious worship like it would have been to the Romans, right? To the Greeks, this is just money. And to the Romans, this is worship. And so the collectors come and they ask Peter, does your teacher not pay the tax? And the way they ask it, they seem to assume that he's going to. Um, maybe this is just a very polite way to deal with somebody. You go to them assuming they're going to pay. And Peter's answer is yes, he's going to pay. In other words, Peter's understanding is there's not going to be a problem. We're going to pay the tax. Why? Think about this. Jesus rejects traditions that don't come from Scripture. Jesus rejects hand washing, for instance, right? He rejects, or at least he rejects hand washing as a, as a religious ceremony. He rejects the Pharisees practicing the Corbin rule to get out of taking care of their parents in their own old age, right? Jesus has no hesitation about rejecting human tradition that don't come, doesn't come from God's word. But this, Jesus is willing to pay. And part of the reason why Jesus will be willing to pay this tax seems to be that this is not a practice that comes out of nowhere. This is actually not a human tradition. In Exodus chapter 30, there are instructions for everyone 20 years or older to give an offering to the sanctuary. So, so it's actually in God's word. The first collection was melted down and they used it to make the silver fixtures for the tabernacle, the bases in the sanctuary, the, the bases of the veil, the hooks for the posts, right? So it looks like all the rulers in Israel seem to have been doing was enacting Exodus 30's instruction and using it to pay for the upkeep of the temple. And, and it, interestingly, it almost, there's a twist. Jesus says he doesn't actually have to do this. And this is actually where we get to our second point this morning, because the second point this morning is the sons. So look what happens here. In verse 15, 
after Peter has this conversation with the collectors, he comes to the house Jesus is in, and Jesus immediately wants to talk about what just happened. So either Jesus overheard the conversation, or he has some supernatural knowledge that's been given to him by the Holy Spirit. He understands what's taken place. Um, but one way or another, he's aware of this conversation. And Jesus uses this as a teachable moment about this temple tax. So in some ways, he has, he has this, this carryover. This carries over to the conversation about paying civil authorities. It's going to come up later. But remember something. These are not secular rulers that are taking up this tax. This is a tax for God's temple. This is a tax for God's temple. What's the lesson? Jesus asks Peter, from whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And, and the assumption of this question is kings get their money that they use from somewhere, right? The taxation happens. Somebody's got to pay it. Do they tax their own children? And the answer Peter gives is, of course not, right? Kings raise money from the rest of society. Kings raise money from the rest of the people, not from their own family. And Jesus moves this from the kings of the earth to God. And Jesus infers from this that if someone is a son, then they are not required to pay taxes to the king. And so in this analogy, you, you might think the king is taking the tax, that's taking the tax is the Jewish leaders. But Jesus says, no, actually the king here is God. The king here is God. This tax for the temple belongs to God. It's for his temple. It's not, it's for his use. And so it's God who is actually receiving the tax. Now here the collectors come and they are taking the tax for God and Jesus says he will pay it, but he doesn't have to. Why doesn't he have to? Because this man, Jesus, knows who he is. He is the king's son. He's the king's son. He's God's son. And as God's son, he is exempt. And he knows that he's exempt by all rights. He, he owes his father nothing. It was only in the last chapter, after all, that the voice on the mountain said that he was the son of God. So when we, when we say Jesus is the son of God, we are not saying he was created by God or that he was less than God. For Jesus to be the son of God, as we confess in the Nicene Creed, it means that he was begotten of the father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, the very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the father. So Jesus is a son of the king, and so he's not a taxpayer when it comes to God's temple. Now that exemption extends to his disciples as well, because he is saying that Peter is a son, and also that Peter is exempt from paying the temple tax. And this is because Jesus also speaks of his disciples as being sons. So understand, he's talking about you here as well. He's not just talking about the twelve. He's talking about anyone who is the son, anyone who is adopted into the family, anyone who is related to Jesus is a son. I mean, think of what he does for his disciples. He teaches them to pray. How does he teach them to pray? He lead, they lead off with those words, our father. That's, that's how he's teaching them to pray. He, he teaches them to think of themselves as sons of your father who is in heaven. 
He, he roots our own pursuit of holiness in our relationship to the Father, right? He says, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. He roots all of these things in our relationship to the Father because we're sons. In fact, between all four Gospels, Jesus teaches his people to think of God as their Father literally hundreds of times. And so even though Jesus is the Son of God, he wants Peter to think of himself as a Son of God. Now, there's a difference. It's not the same. Um, O. Palmer Robertson puts it this way. He says, Jesus simultaneously expresses his oneness with his disciples as as sons to God the Father and yet brothers to himself. Yet at the same time, he maintains a critical distinction. His sonship must be viewed as quantitatively different from theirs. In other words, he is more a son than we are. See, all human beings are are, are created by God. All human beings bear the image of God. Every single person that you meet is valuable because they carry the imprint of our glorious creator. Every person who has ever been conceived, every single person who has walked this planet bears that mark. And because of that, we are worthy of dignity and respect. The sort of dignity and respect that are not due to animals or plants, for example. And God believes this so strongly that to intentionally take another person's life unnecessarily is to forfeit your own in Scripture. Even if someone accidentally takes a person's life, there's still a price to pay because that person was made in the image of a good creator. And in that sense, all people are creatures of God. All people are image bearers of God. But there's sometimes a mistake that we make. Sometimes we say too much. I've heard people say that all people are children of God. And if all they mean by that is that they're created by God, I, I suppose that's a fine way of speaking. But I do think it's confusing language to say that all people are children of God. Scripture reserves that phrase, children of God, not for everyone. Scripture doesn't use that language of people who don't have a relationship to God through Christ Jesus. Instead, John tells us at the beginning of his gospel that it was those who believed in his name that he gave the right to become children of God. Um, Our condition of being children of God, uh, he conditions us being children of God on our relationship to the Son. It is our relationship to the Son that makes us children of God. Um, It's not just John. Paul says it too. He says, it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. He actually denies that you are a child of God if you're not in Christ. Instead, he says, the children of the promise are counted as offspring. See, Paul does the same thing. It's those who know Jesus who are children of God. Um, First John says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. So you see, being a son of God or a child of God is an incredible privilege that doesn't belong to all people. All people are made in God's image, but not all people are necessarily his children. Think of the privilege that you have if you are in Christ. If you are in Christ, you are not only a new creation. God does not regard you as the same as the rest of humanity. While you deserve uh, respect as his image bearers, you have privileges 
that the rest of humanity doesn't have. Let me give you some examples. You don't approach God merely as God. You approach him as father. That's a privilege. Um, You have his spirit within you bearing witness to your own spirit that you are his child. The world doesn't have that. You experience a freedom from the bondage and corruption of creation and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Those who are not in Christ don't experience that. As one of God's children, you are proclaimed blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, right? For those outside of Jesus, that simply isn't true. You couldn't say that of somebody who's not in Christ. You see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Christian, you do not have the same relationship to God that the rest of the world has. In Christ, you have something unique. You know God as Father. They do not. You are a son or you are a daughter. They are not. And this is why Jesus, in essence, is teaching Peter that as a son of God, we do not owe the temple tax. And so as we move on to the next point, we're going to find that Jesus and Peter do pay the temple tax, but they do it for a different reason than because they owe it. And so that takes us to our third point, which is that Jesus shows deference. Jesus shows deference. So Jesus has just made this argument in verses 25 and 26 that they don't owe this tax because they are sons and not strangers to the king. And if you're Peter up to this point, you'd probably be thinking, "Uh uh-oh, this is awkward. I just told the collectors Jesus would pay up, and now he says he doesn't owe. But then here comes the twist in verse 27 because Jesus keeps going. He says, however, not to give offense to them. Go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. I'll be honest. There are just passages where something takes place and I forget everything else in the passage. And this is one of those passages. Like for years, I would I would be reading through Matthew and I would get to this part and I'm If I could be really blunt, I'm just not very interested in taxes. And so hearing Jesus talk about taxes doesn't get me going very much. And then suddenly you get to this part about them casting the the line into the sea and catching a fish and finding the coin. And it occupies all my attention every time I read this. This is the the plot twist that I, I forget what the plot was. And, and so just think about this in line with all of these other things. The ending of this story implies, first of all, Jesus' answer is plot, to, plot twist. We will both pay the tax. That's what he says. He says, we have no obligation, but we'll do it. But the ending of the story almost implies that Jesus and Peter are both poor men too. Uh, it appears that they don't have the immediate ability at hand to pay this tax. So this, this miracle is the only way that the temple tax gets paid. Now, last week, I, I, I picked on the Word of Faith movement just a bit, and, and I'm not done necessarily. I, I want to say another critical word about it. 
Um, and, and this is probably, maybe this is not something you run into. Maybe you run into this all the time. Maybe you're aware of it as an idea. Maybe you don't run into it very often. But, but I grew up with it. And so I always feel myself needing to push back on these things that I saw around me as I was younger. Word of faith preachers often will teach that Jesus was a wealthy man. And they will actually say that Jesus lived a kingly lifestyle. It's, it's actually disgusting, honestly, to hear the humble life of Jesus twisted in such dishonest ways. Um, Jesus' whole life was spent in incredible poverty. Jesus, even the home that Jesus is raised in. When Jesus' parents uh, make the trip to the temple and they make the sacrifice in the temple, the authors of scripture are very careful to say what the sacrifice they made was. And their, their sacrifice was two turtle doves. Two turtle doves is the payment of a poor person, not a wealthy person. Rich people had a different payment that they made instead of the turtle doves. Um, Jesus says that he has no home, nowhere to lay his head. He was a homeless man. And in this passage here, we notice this. We see that poverty is on display. Jesus cannot pay the temple tax unless God provides he needs God to take care of his daily bread here. Now, I don't want to lose focus on the miracle. Well, I really want our focus to be on what Jesus is teaching here. But I also don't want us to ignore the miracle. I want you to think of what an incredible miracle this is. Um, Jesus knew that Peter should throw in his hook. Jesus didn't have him throw in a net and sort through the fish. He didn't say, oh, you'll find the right fish if you just dig through the whole net. Um, Jesus knew that the coin would be in the fish's mouth and not in its stomach. Right? Think about it. That means that it would have to have just caught the coin. Right? He, he, so he's, he's saying, you're going to throw it in at the perfect moment right after he eats this, this coin. And before it even has a chance to swallow it, you're going to catch the fish. Right? He knows that the coin, he knows what kind of coin it's going to be. He knows that the coin is going to be a shekel, which is a silver coin worth four drachmas. And remember, each of them owes two drachmas if they're going to pay for Peter and Jesus. So he knows it's going to be a four drachma coin. That's the tax that they owed, right? That's actually the coin that ends up being found in the mouth of the fish. And so I I want to amplify the miracle here. I don't want to obsess over it, but I want to also just really let you see that our God is amazing, that our God is glorious, and that Jesus has spirit-granted miraculous knowledge in this moment that he exercises. The real point of this passage, though, is not about taxation. This is not a passage uh, that's giving us a lesson in Jesus' miraculous knowledge of fish. Um, This is not a passage teaching us how to fish. Actually, you won't learn how to fish at all from this passage. I've got no application here for you when it comes to fishing methods. I I do not have a five-minute excursus where I talk about the right methods and what Jesus teaches us about becoming a fisherman. All of these things are incidental that are meant to help us see the uniqueness of what we have in Christ. The whole point of this passage is really about sonship and what it means to be a son of God. Peter and Jesus are sons of the king. They don't owe the temple tax, and yet they pay the temple tax. What is it that motivates Jesus to pay the tax if he doesn't owe it? 
who pays a tax that they don't owe. A crazy person, right? <laughs> We're at least somebody who's got plenty to spare. So there, there, are, there appear to be two motives, right? On the one hand, Jesus is avoiding creating a public scandal. Um, there are hills that Jesus is willing to die on, but this isn't one of them. Jesus would take a, a stand. He took frequent stands that made him unpopular, that made him sure to become a target for the scribes and the Pharisees. You know, they are permanently angry with him because there were plenty of hills he was willing to die on. But this is not a hill Jesus is, is willing to die on. Um, there seems to be a second motivation here, and, and I wonder if you see it too. Here's the motivation. There's no cost to paying it. There's no cost to paying it. The coin that pays the tax is one that comes from God in the first place. It is nothing for him or Peter to pay this tax because it wasn't his to begin with. God gave the coin in the first place. You know, what Peter does here is is the free will offering of an offering that's not owed. Right? It's, it's not just that, but the offering given itself was given by God anyway, right? The very thing that they freely give was actually freely given by God. This coin is just a return of God's gift right back into his hand. The coin goes straight from God right back to God. It, it, it just barely passes through their hands. They have the coin for a moment, but whose was it before? It was God's, and then it's, it's theirs for a moment, and then they, they just... It's nothing to just hand it over because it was God's to begin with. And I think, there's, I think there's something here that we could take for our own use, right? The things that we give in this life can be freely poured out because they're all gifts. All of them. Everything, everything that we have is like the coin from the mouth of the fish. Everything. Right? I'm, not even, I'm not even talking materially necessarily, right? This has application. It's much wider in the church. Um. But I will say this should color how we give, though, shouldn't it? Right? Surely, the, surely the freedom that Jesus enjoys in his giving is a model of our own giving. Then the application, though, goes beyond just our offerings in church. You know, we, we saw it in the reading this morning in Romans 12 that we should present our, our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which, are, which is our spiritual worship. That sounds incredibly costly in a sense, right? That, that's all of you. That, that's everything of you. Give my whole self to God as a living sacrifice? Yet have you seen the lesson here? The very sacrifice that God demands was freely given to you in the first place as a gift. As much of a gift as a coin from the mouth of a fish. The price has already been paid. Just like the coin came freely to Peter, the very life he lives was a gift. What does Paul say in Galatians 2? He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The very life I live is a gift that was given to me freely. I have this life, whether I sacrifice or not. God does not condition his free gift of eternal life on whether I give or sacrifice. He gives to me freely and then he calls me to give it back as a willing sacrifice, not under compulsion. Now I can do it because he's already given it. 
that there are times when for the sake of love, you will be asked to give. You'll be asked to give of your time, which was given to you by God. You'll be asked to give of of your finances, which, which were given to you by God. To give of your gifts and abilities, which by definition came from God. They're called gifts, right? Um, To give up your priorities, to give up things that are important to you. And as a son or daughter of God, you don't owe them in order to be a son or to be a daughter. But isn't Jesus also showing us that when he's the one paying, nothing is ours? Right? Isn't he showing us that when it's all on him, we can give whatever is asked because in the end, it really always costs us nothing. Why can we give ourselves as a living sacrifice? You know, Jerome writing in the fourth century when he was talking about this exact passage, he looks at Jesus' actions and he says, Jesus both underwent the cross and paid our tax. Jesus underwent the cross and paid our tax. And so the answer isn't something in us. It's something in him. For us, Jesus paid it all. And now we can freely live our lives as living sacrifices, not because we must, but because now we can. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you for, while all mankind bear your image and all mankind are your creatures, It is those who call upon Jesus Christ as Savior that you call sons and daughters. We ask that you would indeed make our lives a living sacrifice to you, remembering that you have purchased us and redeemed us. And so anything that we give to you was given to us first. We praise you in Christ Jesus and in whose name we pray. Amen.